Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. This is Juan Zarate sitting with Danny Glazer from the Fin team. Uh, welcome back to our great listeners. Hope you're doing well. Today, Danny and I are going to talk about the campaign against terrorist financing. It's not just its history post 9-11, but its current relevance and why it's still important not just to national security figures, not just to policymakers, but to the private sector as well. Danny, welcome. Thanks, Juan. Always happy to be here. It's great. And for those listeners who may not know, Danny Glazer, Finn Principal, uh, was the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing, Financial Crimes at the Treasury Department, 20-year veteran of the Treasury, uh, and had a hand in all of the major developments with respect to terrorist financing post 9-11. We're going to talk a little bit about that to get Danny's perspective as well as some of his insights moving forward. Um, But just to give you a sense of Danny's experience, and and I had the honor of working with Danny, he and I started our work together post 9-11 in trying to develop the standards to deal with terrorist financing globally. Uh, Danny uh, led the U.S. delegation to the Financial Action Task Force when the special recommendations on terrorist financing were uh, developed and adopted in the October 2001 plenary. Danny ended his career being the lead uh, Treasury official responsible for attacking, disrupting, dismantling the Islamic State and its financing. So Danny has seen the evolution uh, of the terrorist financing campaign from its initiation post 9-11 with respect to al-Qaeda all the way to uh, the recent uh, campaign against ISIS. So we're incredibly privileged to to be able to speak with him and, and learn from him. So Danny, can you give uh, the listeners just a sense of kind of how you see the terrorist financing campaign, how it's evolved, and, and its significance, again, not just to policymakers, but to, to the private sector? Well, sure, Juan. And thanks. That's a very kind introduction. I think the listeners need to know how important you were as well in those efforts, Juan, uh, certainly uh, during the years of the Bush administration, was the leading government official on all things relating to terrorist financing and even at the end to terrorism itself. Uh, but we, we got to use the podcast for things other than to sit here and compliment yeah, each other. I love you. Uh, so uh, – on, on terrorist financing, when, when, when you think about the evolution of terrorist financing from 9-11 until the present, I think what's obvious to me is how much more sophisticated the effort has gotten, how much more broad and comprehensive and thoughtful uh, the effort has gotten. When you think about those, those days and weeks and months immediately after 9-11, uh, we were – it was such a it was such a, a new effort before 9/11. Uh, we at Treasury and really throughout the U.S. government, we we while you could find some efforts relating to terrorist financing and some people who were interested in it, illicit finance at that at that at that moment was really about anti money laundering and going after the 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 narcotics cartels, the drug trafficking cartels. It was only after 9/11 that we started to try to apply those same principles and those same strategies to target the the financial efforts um, and the financial networks associated with terrorist organizations. And it was very much a learning experience and 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 you could go and look back at the statements that we made. It's almost it's almost embarrassing in 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 some cases when you think about uh, the language that we used we were going to um, freeze all of the terrorist assets. We were going to bankrupt um, al-Qaeda. These were aspirational statements, but it also uh, wound up, I think, setting the stage for people misunderstanding what the what the terrorist financing campaign ultimately would be all about. Um, certainly, we want to bankrupt terrorist organizations. Certainly, uh, we want to freeze as, as much terrorist assets as we can get our hands on. That's 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 obviously something that's important. Uh, but over time, what we came what we came to understand and what we came to focus on was 
understanding that the financial networks of a terrorist organization was the terrorist organization itself. Um, and if you could understand its financial networks, you could understand the organization itself. And if you could understand its financial networks, you could constrain the organization. You could force the organization to do things it didn't want to do. You could force the organization to devote time, attention, and resources away um, from uh, its other nefarious activities and towards just protecting its infrastructure. You could really... Uh, in, in very meaningful ways, undermine the organization's capacity to be effective and to accomplish its goals. And that really became uh, what the strategies were. And, and, and as you look at, at how we approached organizations in later years, whether it was Hezbollah, whether it was Hamas, whether it was uh, the Islamic State, uh, it was a very, very uh, sophisticated, became a, it became a very sophisticated combination of financial efforts, of law enforcement efforts, sometimes of military efforts, of covert efforts, uh, of diplomatic efforts uh, to try uh, to put constant financial and economic pressure um, on organizations uh, such as those and make them uh, less capable of, uh, of, of, of implementing uh, horrible attacks against the United States and its allies. That's a great way of putting it. And I think from my perspective, one of the things that is prevalent in the commentary around terrorist financing, and it does result from some of those early days of how we talked about it, is the notion that terrorist financing is simply about following the money. Uh, you, you said it before, uh, sort of the cat and mouse game of finding the last dollar that reaches the suicide bomber or the operative and trying to stop that. And of course, you try to do that. Uh, but that's just one dimension, one sliver of the campaign. Uh, and as we started to articulate when we worked together at the Treasury, the idea that our efforts are not just embedded in the strategic campaigns to constrain these groups, uh, but as you said, to, to affect their budget bottom line in a way that uh, affected their strategic reach, their capabilities, uh, and frankly, just fundamentally altered their activities. Uh, we would say the purpose of this is to make it harder, costlier, and riskier for terrorist organizations to raise and move money around the world. And so the strategies of using financial intelligence, financial tools, regulation, diplomacy, sometimes in concert with law enforcement, as you said, um, military assets and activity, um, that became essential and a really important part of the of the campaign. That has put pressure, obviously, on financial institutions uh, to put in place um, greater controls, not just sort of know your customer controls or standard AML, uh, anti-money laundering controls, but also uh, the ability to look at other ways that terrorist groups or networks are, are operating around the world, how they're using cash couriers, hawaladars, which are the trusted broker networks that don't necessarily rely on the formal financial system, how they're using trade, how they're using uh, extortion of remittances, a uh, whole range of, of financial activities uh, that institutions, whether they're big banks or small institutions, uh, have to worry about. That now is all at play. Um, and Danny, I want to talk to you, given the scope uh, and your view of how things have, have changed, talk a little bit about what you saw in recent years with respect to how ISIS was operating and how the U.S. government was trying to affect that and, and what that meant for the strategy and the tools that were applied. Well, sure, Juan. ISIS is a, is a fascinating example, and it's, it's, it's a qualitatively different example of, of a terrorist financing model than, than anything uh, that we've seen before and hopefully than, any, than anything we're going to see um, into the future. But what made 
what made ISIS uh, fundamentally different from any uh, terrorism target, terrorist organizational target uh, that we've ever had before is its ability to raise enormous amounts of money from the territory that it controlled. We had seen examples on a smaller scale of, of terrorist organizations that control territory and were able to extract wealth from that territory, whether it was al-Shabaab in Somalia or even Hamas to a certain extent in Gaza. Neither of those two examples uh, come close to what we're talking about, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that ISIS was generating from, uh, from oil production alone, to say nothing of the uh, uh, its ability to tax economic activity uh, within the territory it controlled, and, and on top of that, just the uh, the, the actual physical uh, currency that was in the in the banks uh, in the vaults of, of some of the banks in in in, um, in Mosul in particular, just gave it a tremendous uh, uh, amount amount of wealth. That presented enormous challenges for those of us who were focused on terrorist financing because it defied the models that we had employed. Uh, which were targeted at trying to isolate terrorist organizations either from state sponsors or from uh, foreign donors, charities, uh, fundraisers, uh, or even from uh, uh, business uh, networks that th that they might have throughout throughout the world that were that were important for for their financial well being. Uh, in the in the in the case in the case of uh, of. Of, of of ISIS, in the end, the, it was it it was a, a, a had to be a a large part of military solution. Uh, we weren't going to be able to um, uh, financially uh, damage um, ISIS until we were able to separate it from its source of wealth. And and the only way to separate it from its source of wealth was to either separate it from the territory that it controlled, um, or destroy its ability to extract wealth from the territory. Um, and it was pretty interesting for me as, a, as an assistant secretary of the, of the Treasury to be spending time you know, in CENTCOM talking to Air Force generals about, about targeting. I used to say sort of jokingly, but, but only half jokingly, you know things are bad when the Treasury Department's number one terrorist financing recommendation is drop more bombs. But that's kind of where we were um, at the time. And thankfully, uh, our military is, is, is of, a, of a caliber and of a quality that they were able to accomplish a lot of the things that we were trying to accomplish. Um, and, and in the end, I think now what you see with, with, um, with a lot of their ability to extract, uh, extract oil wealth gone, both because we destroyed it um, and because we've separated from the territory, and because uh, their ability to take the currency uh, from these financial institutions gone, because we destroyed a lot of that currency, physically destroyed yeah. it. Some of the best images, by the way, I think, you know, for for listeners, if you go online, are the the, the destruction of the cash centers and the the bills sort of flying up into the air after they've been uh, targeted by by missiles and and uh, coalition bombs. I think. Yeah, a fantastic demonstration of exactly what you're talking about. Right, and so we we entered into a, a partnership, the Treasury Department, with the with with the Defense Department and the military that we had never imagined would be necessary. Now that that's been largely accomplished, obviously there's still a lot of work to be done on the ground. But now that that's largely accomplished, uh, I think what we, what we'll see is is ISIS going back to a more traditional fundraising model of the Al Qaeda variety, where it is going to be reliant on. Um, sympathetic out external parties, um, and that is going to then play back into Treasury's more traditional strategy of financial isolation. Danny, I think um, one of the interesting challenges that you faced, and was, I was certainly watching this from the outside, was the fact that you had not just, to your point, 
control of resources by these groups and a, kind of a running of a war economy, the ability to tax, et cetera, but also the control, not just in places like Iraq or Syria, but also in Yemen, even Libya for a certain period, control of real urban environments, real cities. And so in places like Mosul, you had access to the central bank and the vaults. You also had access to elements of the financial system. You had uh, operating economies uh, that you had to deal with. And, and you weren't going to bomb the banks. You weren't going to bomb the money service businesses. But you had to account for the fact that you had territory where those institutions were operating, where ISIS could could access them, or in the case of Yemen and Mukalla, the, the coastal city, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda could access uh, money service businesses until they were um, disrupted by the UAE forces and the Saudi forces. The, the, the reality that they've controlled real urban environments and real institutions presents additional risk and additional challenges to our kind of standard uh, playbook. Well, we, we, we were prepared to bomb the banks in, 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 in Mosul when the opportunities in, 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 in in that part of the world, generally, when the opportunities presented themselves, uh, but you're right; it does. It certainly creates a whole host of uh, complicating factors. Uh, the fact that these targets were in urban environments and our c commitment to uh, uh, minimize, uh, ex you know, uh, collateral damage and, and civilian casualties. The, but it, but you're but you're right. I mean, there was look. There was a component of financial isolation, even with respect to ISIL. The first thing that we did when 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 ISIS, when ISIS took uh, that territory, when ISIS took Mosul, the first thing that we did uh, was was get together with the Iraqi Central Bank and make sure that all of the financial institutions that were located um, in ISIS-controlled territory were cut off from the Iraqi financial system. And we did that very very quickly, and that happened very very quickly. Um, and I was uh, very comfortable, and I remain comfortable uh, that that ISIS did not really have access. Well, they had access to these banks, but these banks didn't provide them access to the financial system. Uh, what was more challenging uh, was uh, the exchange houses. Um, and really, the exchange houses were quite challenging. And then uh, other uh, forms of more informal remittances uh, that they had access to. And there's their ability to move, move cash and the fact that ISIS existed outs outside of the, the territory that they controlled as well, gave them access uh, a little bit more broadly, perhaps, to the Iraqi financial system. So there were all sorts of things, in addition to the, the, the quote-unquote bomb dropping uh, that we were engaged in, uh, uh, just as, as the U.S., as the U.S. With, with the Iraqis, which was the most important relationship uh, with the countries um, in the region, Turkey, Jordan, UAE, Lebanon. Uh, and then uh, with the uh, coalition uh, as, as a whole, the coalition had a variety, uh, has a variety of uh, lines of effort that go well beyond military lines of effort. And one of the lines of effort uh, was financial, uh, counter uh, ISIS finance, which was a process that was chaired by, by the United States um, and probably is, is still chaired by the United States, Saudi Arabia uh, and Italy. And that was a very, very important coalition effort. Right. And you've seen reiteration of that commitment uh, in recent weeks, certainly in the region and with uh, the U.S. administration. Um, Danny, let's talk. You referred to it in terms of uh, you referred to terrorist financing in terms of where it's headed. I think it's worth just a moment to talk through sort of the elements of terrorist financing, because, again, listeners may have a particular vantage point or perception of what we're talking about. But terrorist financing takes on many forms. It takes on forms of external support from uh, sympathetic or corrupted charities or deep pocket donors. It takes the form of 
militia terrorist groups operating war economies. It takes on the form of extortion of diaspora communities. We've seen that historically with the Tamil Tigers. Um, it takes on the form of drug trafficking organizations. We've seen that with FARC, the Taliban, Hezbollah. Um, we have different forms of state sponsorship. And you even have, you know, Al-Qaeda in some ways uh, flirting with, um, you know, changing its name, its stripes, and trying to embed in uh, local movements and, and, and econ in economies, you know, baking bread and, and, and uh, mending wounds uh, in the environments in, when the, in which they operate. Um, can you just talk briefly, I mean, that, that's my attempt to summarize it, but can you just talk briefly about how you view kind of the types of terrorist financing as we then sort of try to deal with the risk that comes from it? Sure. And, and you touched on this earlier, Juan. I, I think a lot of people, when they think of counter-terrorist financing, think of, of efforts to sort of intercept the final wire transfer to a suicide bomber or to some sort of operative uh, immediately before a terrorist attack is going to occur. And these tend to be low-value uh, low wire transfers, which is what results in a lot of these numbers that you see people quoting, saying this terrorist attack only cost $5,000 or only costs $7,500, only cost $15,000. Uh, they're really generally looking at the, the final, the final, final moments, uh, the final, final days or weeks before, before a terrorist attack. Uh, Gosh, it's great to uh, to be able to say that you've intercepted something something like that, and that's something that uh, people in the intelligence community and the law enforcement community work work very hard to do, um, and have become very skilled um, at foiling these types of attacks through a variety of methods that they employ. Uh, what we do when we talk about sort of terrorist financing. On a, on a on a broader level, on a more strategic, systemic level, as I said before, is uh, two things. Uh, and you can think of terrorist financing, uh, counter-terrorist financing efforts in two ways. It's to um, separate a terrorist organization from its sources of income broadly, um, and to, so it can't raise money, and to separate it from the international financial system so it can't use the money that it has broadly. Understanding that on a case-by-case -case basis, if somebody wants to send a wire um, or if somebody wants to move a certain amount of sm small amount of money, they're probably going to be able to figure out a way to do it. Um, what we want to do is broadly separate it so that they can't present strategic threats, that they can only sort of present tactical threats, which are then uh, which then our, our law enforcement and our intelligence services uh, could, uh, could foil. Um, so when, when I think about sort of the different models, uh, different ways that terrorist organizations can raise money, you could think of it as your as as your classic Al Qaeda model, uh, which is an organization that relies on uh, sympathetic donors uh, from abroad, uh, using uh, charities and other forms of fundraising uh, to uh, to supply this organization with it, with its funds, and that's that's sort of your classic uh, that's sort of your classic model. That model still exists today. Uh, you you could think of uh, state sponsorship. Uh, with Hezbollah being the, the classic example of an organization uh, that uh, that has a state sponsor, in Hezbollah's case, it, it being Iran, which provides hundreds of millions of dollars to Hezbollah on an annual basis. Uh, Hezbollah obviously has other sources of, of, of wealth um, as well, whether it's through criminal activities um, or, or or through fundraising or through business interests that it that it may have. Uh, but whatever whatever the level of those additional 
activities are they're uh, they're supplementary uh, to the to the very fundamental support uh, they receive from the government of Iran. So you have your state sponsor model, and then you have, as we discussed before, uh, your ISIS model, where where hopefully that's going to be a unique model of an organization that relies uh, primarily, uh, in, in ISIS's case, almost entirely on uh, on internal sources of wealth, whether it's uh, mineral extracting mineral wealth or whether it's taxing um, economic activity within w- within the region so there's 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 any number of ways and and w- each of those presents a different set of challenges in terms of separating the organization uh, from its sources of wealth uh, in in the case of uh, in, in, in the case of the sort of the Al Qaeda model, uh, you're folk, you're working with uh, uh, local governments, say in, in in the Gulf, on on cracking down on problematic charities and on cracking down on individuals and on making sure uh, that all that you have sort of a, a a broad approach that looks at the financial system, formal financials, and looks at the informal financials, and that looks at different ways uh, taking advantage of intelligence information, law enforcement information, and other information uh, to make sure that cash couriers are being dealt with. A Appropriately, and that everybody's being careful, and that people um, are focused on uh, really trying to crack these these networks. Um, in the case of uh, of a state sponsor, in addition to those types of things, of course, you're also looking at putting pressure on the source itself, uh, the, the the state itself. Again, in in Hezbollah's case, that would be Iran, and and we already talked about in the internally generated funds, oftentimes you need to resort to, as we say, kinetic, more kinetic approaches. That's all in the area of separating from their sources of wealth. In separating them from the international financial system, it's it's it's, it's actually a much more consistent strategy. That's making sure broadly throughout the world, uh, AML, CFT, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing uh, practices are, are, are adhered to, global standards are adhered to, both in terms of uh, the financial system, in terms of how, how countries regulate um, uh, their financial system, in terms of how they share information and cooperate with each other on, on the financial level, on the intelligence level, on the law enforcement level, um, and making sure that uh, the law enforcement is also doing its job cracking down um, on banks um, and on uh, uh, other regulated entities that are not doing their job. Uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the broad international effort to create a transparent and, and hostile environment in the international financial system, both formal and informal, for terrorist financing. It doesn't mean that you're going to completely eliminate terrorist financing any more than you're going to completely eliminate any kind of crime that we're concerned about. Uh, but you hope that by doing, by trying to on a, on a case-by-case basis, separate them from their source of wealth, and then on a broad systemic basis, separate them from the international financial system. As I said, you could create a hostile environment that makes it much, much more difficult for them to operate. It's fantastic, Danny. Let, let's switch now to the risks in the system and the risks in particular to the private sector of terrorist financing. Again, there, there are the dimensions of the problem of having a terrorist or a terrorist actor um, having access to uh, financial resources, having an account, having the ability to pull money from ATM machines, all these things that we've seen, for example, in the foreign fighter context. Um, but I think what what is less well understood are some of the systemic risks that are at play. And, and broadly speaking, there are sort of two kinds of risk, I think. One relates, obviously, to sanctions-related risk both based on country-based programs and individuals and entities that have been designated pursuant to a variety of terrorist uh, programs, Uh, the the most uh, significant in the UN context being the al-Qaeda and the Taliban list. But uh, obviously, uh, others persist in the US, EU, uh, and UN context as well. Um, 
but it's also in the context of anti-money laundering where um, institutions have the obligation to understand uh, not just their direct risk, but potentially even their indirect risk to some of these um, terrorist financing challenges. Um, and I just I wanted to raise a, a couple, Danny, and get your take on it, and, and see if, if you have other thoughts for for the listeners. Um, I think I think part of the challenge here is if you get organizations, um, be they sophisticated or not, uh, that are able to control territory and resources in a fundamental way. You have Al Shabaab having historically controlled the port of Kismayo. Um, ISIS, as you talked about, controlling uh, the oil trade um, in a significant part of Iraq and Syria. Um, other organizations controlling smuggling routes, uh, et cetera. Um, that that then begins to present, if not direct risk to the formal commercial and financial system, than indirect risk. And so when groups like these control ports or at least have influence over ports, that's exposure. There's risk there. When they control um, access to, as you said, currency exchange houses uh, or even banks, that's, that's a risk. When they control types of trade in a region um, and, the, and the channels of that trade, that presents potential direct or indirect risk. Um, not to mention when you have human rights um, uh, and, and humanitarian needs, better said, in some of these conflict zones, which creates then challenges of how you get money in and out necessarily in places like Yemen or Libya or uh, war zones like Syria, uh, that becomes a, a real challenge for institutions to know their customers. And then finally, when you get sophisticated groups like Hezbollah that operate uh, global uh, drug trafficking organizations, understand how to move money, uh, are trying to launder that money uh, through the financial system uh, from one hemisphere to the next, um, you know, that obviously then presents risks to the financial system. And so par part of what I'm th I think I'm trying to, to articulate here is terrorist financing has over time been viewed as uh, a rather um, important security issue, but one that is less relevant to the financial system. And I think actually in 2017, what you have are risks given the nature of terrorist financing that actually implicate the formal financial system more directly than ever before, or at least in a way that we're more aware of than, than before. Um, what do you think about, about that, Danny? And, and, and are there other risks that you see in the system? Well, well certainly that's, that's true. And I, I don't know that there'd be too many people who have positions of, of responsibility within the international financial system that would uh, argue that, that point. Maybe there's people um, outside lo looking in who don't don't quite understand how this all works but I I, I think that the um, over the years the, the internet people uh, financial officials uh, whether in the public sector or the private sector have come to understand uh, the importance of this issue to the international financial system for a variety of for a variety of reasons whether it is uh, more broadly about protecting the integrity of the international financial system and some of the sort of the higher ideals that we would express at the Treasury Department um, or whether it's about undermining particular organizations uh, this is something that is very much um, integral uh, at this point in history uh, to the the functioning and operation of the international financial system, and there's a for a variety of reasons. I think the most basic levels. I I, I think fi fi people in the financial 
in the international financial community don't want to facilitate terrorist financing. Of course, they don't want to do that, and 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 they want to be, uh, you know. Obviously, you have bad apples in every barrel, but but for the most part, I think people want to play by the rules and they want to do the right thing and they 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 want to uh, do what they can to international to international efforts to defeat uh, and respond to terrorism. Uh, but beyond that. Uh, Financial officials um, are at great risk. They are at great reputational risk uh, for being involved uh, in anything that touches uh, terrorism, whether or not they're playing a facilitative role. And we've seen uh, examples of of banks that that simply are being pushed out of the international financial system uh, for uh, alleged conduct that existed that 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 occurred many many years ago. Um, and, and, and these institutions have tried to address it, and, and yet uh, it's become very, very difficult for them to get out in front of just the reputational damage uh, that's been caused by having their names associated uh, with, certain, uh, with certain terrorist events. The stain um, is longstanding, right? It's hard to And in, 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 in some yeah. cases, uh, fatal, if you look at uh, Riggs Bank, for example. Um, but the, uh, it's, uh, so there's the reputational risk, and then there's the actual uh, regulatory risk, and 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 we've seen um, tremendous uh, uh, fines uh, that and uh, um, that have been handed out to to, to banks, particularly by uh, U.S. regulatory and law enforcement authorities, uh, oftentimes for sanctions violations that go beyond uh, terrorist financing. But terrorist financing certainly presents the similar sort of risk for institutions. Um, and again, uh, sometimes this is for uh, activity um, that the uh, uh, that happened in the in, in the in, in the past, and that these institutions would at least argue that they've gotten gotten beyond. But it, it, what it demonstrates um, is uh, the importance for uh, everybody in the international financial system, both because they want to be part of the solution, because uh, they want to be perceived uh, reputationally as being part of the solution, and certainly not part of the problem. And then for the very real regulatory risks and law enforcement risks that they face, um, it's uh, it's. Um, it's really brought um, anti-money laundering terrorist financing uh, to the forefront of global discussions about the financial system and about the integrity of the financial system, about transparency within the international financial system, about the appropriate role of uh, what uh, about the appropriate role of law enforcement within the financial system, about uh, the appropriate role of the financial system to account for a high risk high-risk regions, even if it might not be profitable, even if, if it presents uh, uh, certain uh, certain very real risks for the institutions, what are their obligations? What are the obligations of governments to respond to that? I mean, terrorist financing um, is uh, uh, become um, sort of quite a, uh, quite a central uh, uh, axis around which a lot of different very interesting conversations are occurring. Even litigation, right? You have the, the private sector litigation from victims of terror um, trying to go after banks and trying to shape, frankly, levels of due diligence and, and, and trying to hold banks to account for acts of terror based on financial activity alleged to have gone through their, uh, their institutions. So to your point, Danny, it's, it touches almost all aspects of, of, the, of the international domain. Um, one other thing, Danny, we've talked about a lot, certainly uh, with our clients and, and internally at Finn, is the proliferation of lists and the potential that what you have in the terrorist financing context is not just lists that are driven by the UN Security Council or even by OFAC in the US or the State Department or the, the European Union um, or recognizable authorities, but by new authorities or governments that are 
realizing that the use of targeted financial sanctions, the use of lists, the use of the label of terrorism and terrorist financing brings with it not just political advantage, but also influence in shaping financial and economic behavior. Um, and so we've seen uh, in recent months uh, countries like uh, Egypt and the UAE and Saudi Arabia putting out uh, their lists tied to uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood um, that aren't just uh, located in their, uh, in their countries but have more uh, international reach. And so this is an issue obviously of, of concern for multinational uh, companies and organizations that have to deal with various laws and requirements. Um, where do you see this heading, Danny? Is this, is this a, a, a complicating factor? Is this good in that countries are starting to take ownership of, of dealing with terrorist financing or is it, is it sort of a mixed bag? Well, as, as, as with most things, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag, but I think it's a very important point uh, that you raise. Previously, countries were very comfortable in announcing that they abide uh, by UN Security Council lists, and they thought that that could be the end of the discussion. What I think they found out and what a lot of their financial institutions have certainly found out uh, is that, that that really could only be the beginning uh, of the discussion as a practical matter. Um, U.S. lists absolutely have to be accounted for. The OFAC list absolutely has to be accounted for for any institution, um, regardless of what legal regime it, it's operating in. If that if that institution wants to do business in the international financial system, it's going to have to account for the U.S. list, and it's probably going to have to account for the EU list as well. Now, the EU list is it's pretty unusual for there to be an entity on the EU list that's not on on, on, on a U.S. list. But uh, in any case, the, these lists um, have to be accounted for. And I think that that's um, been digested by the international financial system. And I think that's a part of standard operating procedure of any of any international bank that you could uh, imagine. It's it's incon it's almost inconceivable to think of a bank doing business in the international financial system and say, well, we just we, we're not interested in the U.S. list. We're not interested in the, in the EU list. Yeah. Even but, even if they're not subject to legally, they're they're still obviously aware of it for purposes of diligence and yeah, and it's, review it's, and screening. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's hard to imagine them not screening against uh, at the very least screening against those lists. Um, what what you point out though is, uh, it's it's starting to get much more complicated than just saying UN US EU. Uh, so as you point out, Juan, now uh, uh, certain countries in the Gulf have their own list uh, that have uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, on it, which are not on a UN list, EU list, or US list. Uh, how are banks uh, supposed to deal with deal with that? Uh, what sort of what sort of precautions do they have to take with respect to that? What sort of legal obligations does that drive them? Not just in the Gulf, but globally. Uh, what sort of global impact does a, a group of countries have? Um, that 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 the targets a group like the Muslim Brotherhood have throughout the international financial system. Um, and uh, again, as you implied, Juan, why does it why is it necessarily going to stop there? As 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 China begins to assert itself more in the international financial system, maybe China is going to have um, its own list. Why why wouldn't it? Why would the U.S. We we feel that like we could have our list. Why can't China? Have and the this Chinese, list? of course, have threatened uh, U.S. companies in the wake of uh, exactly. arms sales to Taiwan. And there's a debate within China, these some circles, to the use of uh, unilateral sanctions. To your point, Danny. And how about Russia? Russia has has always embraced. Um, the financial campaign um, against terrorism and has been a very, very close partner with the U.S. for the most part in that in that campaign. Uh, but maybe Russia will have its own list. And, and I, I could assure you that it won't mirror 100 percent what the U.S. list is. Um, 
they 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 they've already employed uh, they've employed sanctions in the past on the Republic of Georgia, for example. Um, so you and have, against Turkey in the, in one of the recent flare against Turkey. Yeah. I mean, Turkey will have its own list. They certainly have a, a set of uh, of interests and groups uh, that don't necessarily parallel U.S. interests. So uh, and, and 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 who knows who else. So uh, this is all going to present really, really interesting uh, problems uh, for financial institutions trying to operate um, across the globe, uh, both on a, on a very, very technical compliance level. I think it's going to be extremely complicated. Um, and on sort of more broad sort of strategic thinking for financial institutions, how to deal with it is going to be very, very complicated. And one of the dangers you and I have talked about, Danny, is – uh, the, the real danger that the terrorist financing cam campaign becomes so overtly political, uh, not that politics is, has been divorced from this in the past, but so overtly political that it begins to damage some of the fundamentals of, of the system. And so to your point, I think this is something for, for institutions to watch. We'll obviously be watching it very, very carefully. Um, one other point I wanted to make, Danny, and this goes back to your point earlier about the strategic importance of terrorist financing, which I think is often um, misunderstood or at least missed by, by some observers, um, is how important the terrorist financing campaign has been, not just in managing risk in the financial and commercial sectors, but also um, in terms of revealing strategic vulnerabilities and opportunities in the national security space. Uh, this is in part why I think the campaign against terrorist financing, even if it were deemed to be ineffective against the last mile of a threat uh, from a suicide bomber, let's say, or a terrorist group, uh, would still be relevant. And, and to something we discussed earlier, uh, understanding terrorist financing is to understand relationships, uh, relationships between actors, relationships as to how networks and groups are evolving or adapting. Um, it reveals vulnerabilities that can be exploited and, and undermined. It complements other authorities, diplomatic authorities, law enforcement, intel authorities. Um, reveals really interesting and important uh, fundamental issues. Uh, in the past, for example, the question of Saudi funding to Wahhabi causes around the world and, and whether or not that should be a fundamental issue of contention and, and um, something the U.S. government and, and others should raise with the Saudis because of the effects of terrorist financing uh, or at least the, the orbit of, of, of those networks. Even the, the issue of doctrines of deterrence, uh, I think one of the things we saw, Danny, when we were at the Treasury and certainly when I went to the White House was how some of the elements of how we were trying to influence with the use of these tools to isolate rogue actors from the financial system was an interesting way of thinking about deterrence in a supply chain in, within a business network, within a network, where not all the actors are the same, not all the actors have the same interests, and where you can apply financial and economic pressure to elements of those networks that allow you then to affect strategically. And, and so that thinking then affecting the way that other parts of, of the U.S. government, the national security establishment, thought about the use of power and influence. So. I think my bottom line is terrorist financing is going to continue to evolve. Uh, but what's fascinating to me is it continues to be strategically relevant. And to what you said earlier, Danny, Danny becomes an axis around which so many fundamental and interesting issues revolve to include all the financial and commercial risks uh, that, that we deal with as a company and that we observe um, as, as former policymakers. Um, Danny, any last thoughts as, as we close out this FinCast on terrorist financing? No, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs>
Thanks, Danny. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this latest round of FinCast, talking about terrorist financing here with Danny Glazer. I'm Juan Zarati. We're Finn. Hope you have a great day. <laughs>